I don't think you can overstate how devastating it is for Trump to have to be a defendant in a trial. His whole thing is acting powerful, acting the big man. And you can't do that as a criminal defendant sitting in the courtroom while lots of other people talk about you. Sitting in a courtroom as a defendant is, that is a nightmare for Trump. And I think for him and his lawyers, the whole ball game here is delay. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. The health of the Republic now comes potentially to turn on legal fine points like rules of evidence and doctrinal principles that will dictate how Trump will fare at trial and, perhaps equally important, when he will go to trial. As with the Mar-a-Lago case, the former president's prospects for an acquittal are slim and none. Make that none and none. And his focus is foremost on delaying the January 6th trial until after the November 2024 election. This week's arraignment on the four-count, 45-page indictment seemed to throw Trump. He had to wait around like other defendants, and the magistrate judge addressed him as Mr. Trump, admonishing him not to tamper with witnesses. Whether this loss of control unsettled him, or whether the latest charges led him to think he had to scale an even higher rhetorical peak, Trump wrote an all-caps message the next day, If you go after me, I'm coming after you, which seems to position him for an early showdown with Judge Tanya Chutkin. The upcoming trial, as I and many have said, is the most important in the history of the U.S. justice system. And while the law and evidence are stacked against him, the former president has some substantial cards of his own to play. These include legal claims against the indictment that can't be dismissed out of hand and factual defenses that might possibly draw off one juror, which would be enough to produce a hung jury and what Trump would proclaim as a triumph. These legal considerations now take on political and historic significance of their own as we suss out the relative strengths and weaknesses of the many claims Trump can be expected to press vigorously, if only for their possible delay benefits. To give a full and fair airing to Trump's potential defenses and their likelihood of serving not just his legal but his political interests, including delaying the trial, if possible, until after the presidential election, We welcome three analysts who combine great scholarly and practical chops. And they are... Daya Lithwick, an award-winning journalist and author, senior editor at Slate. She also hosts Amicus, Slate's award-winning podcast about the law and the Supreme Court. She's held faculty positions, visiting faculty positions at numerous universities, and her recent book, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America, which was showcased on a previous Talking Books episode, was an immediate New York Times bestseller. Dahlia Lithwick, thanks as always for joining. And thank you for having me back. Danny Savalas. Danny, is it possible it's your first time on Talking Feds? No, it's my second time. I am so glad it was so memorable the first time around. But I'll tell you what, I believe I may be the first in terms of the first criminal defense attorney to make his way onto the show. 
It's about time. I am advocating for my brethren and my sister and to get on this show. And it's about time, frankly. It's enough. Very of good. You, uh, that will be quite enough, Mr. Savalas. Sir. All right. There you are. <laughs> but he is, as you can hear, an attorney, the co-founder of Savalas and Wong, MSNBC legal analyst now, but he's been a well-known media presence on many different networks, including guest hosting Primetime Justice on Headline News. And he is, as you can hear, the one among us who still stands up in courts around the country in civil and criminal trials from white collar to murder. Danny, thanks so much for joining. An invaluable perspective here. Thank you. And then finally, David Sklansky, the Stanley Morrison Professor of Law at Stanford University, where he's co-director of the Criminal Justice Center. Before joining the faculty at Stanford, he taught at UC Berkeley and UCLA. He won teaching awards at all three of those California institutions. Earlier, David served as an assistant U.S. attorney in Los Angeles. And though he's understandably scrubbed this from his resume, he hired me for my first job out of law school. David Sklansky, thanks for joining. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I thought a little bit about how to organize this because I don't just want to march through. So let me just give you a list of the various defenses, good, bad, or inane, that are being bandied about by Team Trump and acolytes, and then we can move to analyzing the ones that seem most important or interesting. So I'm just going to rattle off things that I've heard out there. First Amendment, you know, that the DOJ is charging and criminalizing political speech. Good faith belief on Trump's part that he won. Advice of counsel. Selective prosecution slash prosecutorial misconduct. Change of venue. Can't get a fair trial in D.C. Oy, such massive discovery, Your Honor, that it would, it'll take months and months. The government delayed in bringing a case for political reasons. Executive privilege and qualified immunity. Does that sound comprehensive to everybody? Is there anything missing from the list? I think it's a fantastic list, and it's even <laughs> uh, it's some of the things that I hadn't even thought of before. So I think it's terrific. I tried hard on it, but careful because Dias, I think, is coming in with a omission from the front of the class here. <laughs> no, I, I lawyered this before you got here, Danny, and said to Harry and David that I thought maybe Ted Cruz's. Judge Shutkin is wildly biased. She was appointed by Obama. She's been very, very, very hard, way too hard on January 6th offenders. And so she should be disqualified from the jump, even though that's maybe silly. It's not as silly as some of the things on Harry's list. So I'm going to throw it into the mix. And we're not going to have time to go through all, but I want to go through, look, I, I want to take this seriously. And Judge Chutkin obviously will. And David Sklansky has said that some of the legal theories here are not so simple. So let's start with the political speech defense, which seems to be the leading theme in the remarks of lawyers and surrogates out of the box. Anyway, Danny Savalas, what's the strongest footing to put it on? You know, I've heard a lot of people talking about the free speech First Amendment defense, but I think even that defense is a pretty large tent. And I, I feel like I've heard other people. Yeah describe their version of what they think the First Amendment defense is for Donald Trump. And it varies. I mean, the simplest version is Donald Trump can say any words he wants to. And, and that doesn't 
that doesn't move my needle much because there have always been plenty of kinds of pure speech that could be criminalized. I mean, a, a statement that constitutes a threat, for example, and here's an example of a statement that constitutes a threat, picking up the phone and calling the Georgia Secretary of State and suggesting as the head of the executive branch and the essentially the head of the DOJ that the secretary and his lawyer are committing federal crimes. I mean, if you and I were to make that kind of threat, it wouldn't have much meaning because we're regular citizens. But when it comes from the president of the United States, that's pretty intimidating. And more straightforwardly, right, conspiracies, agreement to do something unlawful, they're almost always words. Words, right. So that you're given a sort of straw man version. That's a really good point, by the way, that I haven't heard before. You're, it's inconsistent how it's being framed. Is there a stronger framing that you've heard out there that you would you would make as Trump's lawyer? Well, I've heard another version of that, which is the First Amendment and a right to petition Congress for redress. Mm -hmm. And I think that's interesting. I mean, the reality is I think the judge here has a really difficult decision to make because she's going to have to decide which of these defenses come in and which of them are excluded. And I don't envy her because this is not something she can really even fall back on a whole lot of precedent to decide what would be admissible and what wouldn't be admissible. And so, I mean, what's her approach going to be with a First Amendment defense that is, you know, hey, I have a right to petition Congress for redress or I have a right to say whatever I want. That's an easier one, I think, because it's never been true that you can just say whatever you want anytime you want. So I think Trump needs to deploy the First Amendment defense. I think he needs to be creative. And I think as part of that, he needs to put the Electoral Count Act on trial. And even if he can, and I don't know that he'll be able to put the entire 2020 election on trial. He said he'll do that, whether they'll let him. And so let's move to Diane David. And I'll, I'll just frame it a little more general, which is like, look, this is all political speech in the sense of this is him being president, you know, even aggressively lobbying for what's right. It's just all, if unusual, nevertheless, standard, constitutionally framed uh, back and forth, maybe something like that. What do you think? Do you, you think it's a strong defense? It's not a strong defense. Yeah. <laughs> the, the First Thanks, Amendment Dave. doesn't give you a right to lie. And right. this is a fraud case. You know, a, a lot of people have talked about how closely this indictment tracks the January 6th committee report. But one way in which it doesn't closely track that committee report is the committee was focused on the violent assault on the Capitol. This indictment is all about fraud. And fraud is always speech. So if the First Amendment <laughs> protected your right to lie, there nobody could be prosecuted for fraud. I do think that saying that it's political speech gives it a different valence. It allows Trump's lawyers to try to analogize it to the speech and debate clause, maybe. But I feel that this is at best a delaying tactic. I think I agree with both David and Danny that this is not going to be a, a one-off. This is going to be just a theme that arises time and time again throughout the trial. I don't think there's going to be a ruling on day one about all free speech issues. But I think that Bill Barr himself said on Wednesday that speech is an element of this. It's not the crime. I think it's so important that Jack Smith starts the indictment by saying, look, he had a right to say what he wanted to say. He had a right to lie his 
face off. That's not the issue here. The issue is everything else, all the conduct that comes into it. And that is, uh, you know, as David says, the fraud. It's also the threats against Pence. You know, I know this is going to dovetail with what we're going to talk about in a moment, but it's the knowing lying, right? It's that he knew there weren't thousands of dead people voting in Georgia. And that piece of it he knew was false. And maybe just the last thing I would say is, you know, on this question of free speech, it's incredibly important to understand that he knew it was being amplified by these lawyers all around him who are unindicted conspirators and by conservative news outlets that were amplifying it. And so there's a weird way in which if all speech is protected, then everything that was the sort of knock on effect of this speech, which is, again, why the incitement stuff isn't charged, right? Why some of the things that the Gen 6 folks would have liked to see charged, the things that are clearly speech are, you know, protected here. But the stuff that is amplified, the lying lies that were known to be lying, that's conduct. I just wanted to add a couple points. So I think you're right constitutionally, Dahlia, but I don't even think we have to go to a speech versus conduct distinction. So I just want to follow up on David's point. Three of the four charges are conspiracies. Conspiracies are agreements to do something unlawful and an, and an overt act. Those are almost invariably speech acts. So it's not even not speech versus conduct. It's what was agreed to. So if I say, hey, let's all rob a bank, those are words, but obviously not protected words. And I do think when you push on this, it seems sort of um, specious. But I wanted to follow up on David's point about the indictment. It's obviously something they did very, very carefully was wordsmith, so to speak, you know, top to bottom. There are a lot of things you could have done, as you know, Dave was saying, you could have had a, a January 6th-like presentation really stressing the violence and the melee. This is a parable about telling the truth. It starts out, you know, flat out, paragraph one. He lost the 2020, that's just a fact, put it to the side. And then again and again and again, the defendants spread lies, they were false, they knew they were false. And if you march through the indictment, you find a really noteworthy numbers of fraud, lies, et cetera. That, that really is the sort of main theme of a carefully constructed set of charges. All right. Let's go to the related point that I think is going to be coming and has been sort of in the water forever. I put it as sincere belief. You know, it's always, oh, well, he really, what, not from advice of counsel. We'll go to that in a minute. But let's say he actually thought he had won. And bizarrely, he's basically, he and his lawyer, have come out of the box saying they're going to relitigate the 2020 election as part of their defense, which must make Republican operatives have heart attacks. But, okay, so this one, how are you going to present it? Maybe back to you, Counselor Savalas, you know, what's the strongest footing you can put this on in front of a, a jury? Right. But I, I just have to say first that sure. what's happened in the last 24 hours is so strange to me because we all start Talking about things like, let me give you an example. In the last 24 hours, I've heard people talk about, well, you can't really criminalize speech. But in the last 10 minutes, we've talked about at least three or four different crimes that are essentially pure speech. And yet we seem to be having this discussion. Well, 
you can't criminalize something that he said. And then the other thing that you just mentioned is there's a lot of discussion now about, well, you can't prove what Trump knew and didn't know. Criminal defendants have been pulling that maneuver since crime was invented. <laughs> Prosecutors have a fix for that. And it's not no prosecutors ever had to prove uh, what was actually in somebody's mind. They have to demonstrate instead to a jury using circumstantial evidence what they think beyond a reasonable doubt the defendant thought because no defendant or, you know, unless they plead guilty, defendants never come in and say, oh, yeah, I had the requisite criminal intent. So the idea that we're having this discussion over the last you know, week or so about, well, we'll never know what Trump really knew or didn't know. Yeah, we might not, but we don't need to know that for court. We just need the prosecutors know that the government knows that they'll march in 14 witnesses who will talk about what was said to Trump. And then we may never know what he actually thought, but we don't need to. It's really about what the jury will conclude that the evidence shows that he thought so there's two different points you're making. Let's start with this, in some ways, more devastating one. Why don't we need to? Well, because that's never, it's until we get the software that downloads what is actually in our brain, prosecutors have never been able to prove what somebody is mm -hmm. actually thinking. Instead, they demonstrate it to a jury using circumstantial evidence, whether that be witnesses who told him certain things or emails. Well, he doesn't send emails or tweets or things that he said to people that were recorded contemporaneously in someone's notes. I mean, this is what prosecutors have been doing since time immemorial. So it seems strange to me that we're, we're reevaluating that. All right. Well, I'll do the role playing then, Danny. You heard Mr. Savalas say that circumstantially he heard this, that and the other. But now there's a very big question how he's going to prove it if he can Trump. But let's just let's assume yes, there were there were competent one. evidence there that said you heard what, you know, other people told him go for it. This is fine. John Eastman and the like. So I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, that when you go back there, you need to really think hard. Let, let's say that he's. He's, in fact, candidly telling you he thought he had won. He, st he still believes that today. And that's why I've been cautioning people. You know, you can't completely dismiss out of hand, even though, and I'm using Mike Pence's words, the people that may have told him were crackpots. A gaggle, a gaggle of crackpot lawyers. Right. Got generic noun there, too. Mike Pence. Sorry, I ahead. love Mike Pence. Yeah, I love that that's how he uses. I mean, it seems like an old timey kind of word, too. I love when people right. kind of dust off right. old timey words like crackpot. Yeah. You know, it wasn't a mistake. Yeah. Right, right. So, yes, will they be able to demonstrate that people who, and I know this sounds bonkers now, but at the time, at one time, Rudy Giuliani was America's mayor. At one time, John Eastman yeah. was a professor. At one time, even Sidney Powell was a respected attorney. So, yeah, maybe what they were saying was crazy, but I don't think we should completely dismiss out of hand the idea that the Trump team will be able to show, and this isn't quite the advice of counsel defense. I, I think it needs to be broader than that for the defense to show that in the ether were all of these people saying, including people like Rudy, people like John Eastman, people like Sidney Powell, who are telling Trump in no uncertain terms, Mr. President, there's something wrong with this election. So let me stop you right here. Let me stop you right here. And and I, in fact, by the way, on my question, I think it's possible Rudy even testifies. But OK, that's served up to the jury. It's got to be beyond a reasonable doubt. Sure. What's the uh, likelihood of success, David or Daya? I think the prosecutors will be able to meet this challenge. But 
I think it's a real challenge. I, th- this is not a, a phony defense. This is a real thing. And y- y- it's true that it's something that prosecutors encounter in all fraud cases, but it's a genuine issue, particularly because when you're dealing with somebody like Trump, who lies when he wakes up, lies all day, and seems to be able to convince himself of his own lies, you do have a question of, did he honestly believe what he was saying? These are the cases I prosecuted. And one thing that helps prosecutors is that defendants rarely argue in court, I was mistaken. I really believed it. Instead, they do what Trump almost certainly will do, which is to insist that they weren't mistaken, that they were correct. And what they are hoping for is that even if the jury doesn't believe that they were correct, even if the jury doesn't believe that there was widespread voting fraud, the jury will think, you know what? It's kind of murky. We don't know, which is a replay of the strategy that Trump was trying to to play when he was trying to get the election results thrown out in 2021. Juries often balk at that and get pissed off and think, you know, we're seeing in real time what the prosecutors were telling us, that this guy is a liar and a con artist. And I I think that's what is likely to happen when and if this case goes to trial. But it's not certain. I think this, unlike a lot of the other things that you mentioned, Harry, I think that this is a real defense. There's two challenges to the sort of theory of mind of Donald Trump, which has been confounding us, right, from the get-go. Like, because he lies constantly, how do you determine mens rea about anything? And I think that the one thing is, you know, what both Danny and David have just said, which is it's not sort of static as between, you know, like his theory of mind changes between lunch and, and, and dinner. And then I think there's this other problem, which is we have pretty good contemporaneous testimony of the sort that Danny described that he knew he lost the first he he didn't think he lost the election on election night then he knew that he did right we've got testimony to that effect then we've got testimony saying oh wait now he's convinced that the fraud happened and that starts to harden as he gets legal advice and I know again this dovetails with the advice of counsel thing but I don't even think we have a static mens rea here because I think he was dipping in and out of a set of beliefs both of which were probably true in his mind at the same time you know over the course of 10 minutes depending on who he was talking to and so this is not a person who has a sort of stable worldview. His worldview is so utterly transactional and malleable and subject to whoever it is he last spoke to that I think it's entirely possible for the jurors to believe. And this is why I think David's right. This is kind of a a credible argument that he knew he lost the election, but then he decided that there was fraud. And then he knew that there was going to be a transition. And then he decided to go after the fraud. And all of those things were true in his mind at the same time. So it's just a really hard thing to say there's no static theory here because we're dealing with somebody who is essentially like made of vapors. By the way, I think it's helpful in this regard that the indictment charges deceptions with regard to things other than whether there was widespread voting fraud. For example, there are allegations that the fake electors were themselves deceived about how their declarations would be used. That's quite helpful in this regard. 
to the prosecutors. First, I think it's a really good point when you stack it up against the beyond a reasonable doubt standard and the need, at least in the first instance, for him just to have a single holdout. He is, on top of everything else, vaporous, hard to pin down, famously inconsistent. There is this hovering issue of how the defense will be presented, but she's going to let it happen one way or another. Do we all agree, by the way, on the subsidiary question about delay, this theory, if it when it comes in, it's got to be through evidence and testimony, right? This isn't a way to delay for months in a pretrial motion. The U.S. won't say he can't try to argue it. So this is just sort of the guts of cross-examination or a big part of the trial testimony, yeah? That's what I think. I mean, that's going to be the crux of the defense is to march in any witnesses you can right. that are not co-conspirators. I think it's a safe assumption we might see some of these co-conspirators at trial testifying maybe for the government, uh, you know, if they're granted immunity. I mean, there's so many things that can happen with the unindicted co-conspirators. And by the way, there's just cross-examination of whoever of the case in chief witnesses on the along these grounds. Right. Sure. Yeah, exactly. And so, again, it doesn't have to be a perfect defense. It just has to create reasonable doubt. I think it's the strong it's right now to me, it's the strongest defense. It's it's amazing to me, as as Dahlia pointed out, I guess as a criminal defense attorney, knowledge is imputed to a lot of my clients that I feel like probably don't have a lot of knowledge, haven't had a lot of opportunities in life and just don't know stuff. And it's kind of amazing that, again, out there, we're all having this discussion about, is Trump too dumb to form the requisite intent? I mean, it's amazing that he's created an atmosphere where we're having a debate that, oh, he may be too dumb to understand. As the president, he may just not have enough brain power. There just might not be enough cerebral activity up there for him to understand that what he was doing was wrong or to know better than to listen to John Eastman or Sidney Powell. I mean, it's just kind of amazing as somebody, you know, who practices criminal defense that we're having this discussion about, like, maybe he's an infant and he doesn't know any better. (laughs) No, we wouldn't do that with any other criminal defendant in America. It's really true. Or just maybe because of psychopathology, he actually, I think you just said this, Dave, can talk himself into things. All right. I do want to say one thing, but it's because they're, you know, legally, I think it's a loser, but not enough for her to take it away from Trump. He could sincerely believe it. And that's why he should go to court as he did 60 times, losing 59 and a half. It doesn't negative the crime and the elements of the crime, or or put another way, doesn't legally justify trying to have false electors or trying to impede January uh, 6th. But I think that's implicit in what everyone's saying. I hear two points. One, this isn't just a, you know, I stand up and do it for 10 minutes. It's a theme. And two, it's the one with the best shot of just a general kind of sowing of doubt in a juror or or two, whether or not it's pristine legally. All right, let's move to the one that we know they're going to do that I think people really don't understand and would profit from knowing about. But all his little statements go there which is advice of counsel. What exactly is the advice of counsel claim that we think he's going to make? And if it's flawed, is it flawed on the facts or on the law? Advice of counsel is not an affirmative defense. It's not one of these things that you argue lets you off the hook, even though you're guilty of the crime. Advice of counsel is a way in which you cannot be guilty of a crime to begin with because you lack the necessary intent. And because this is a fraud case, 
because basically everything that all the crimes that Trump is charged with here have to do with deception and fraud, the government is required to prove that he knew that the things that he was saying and trying to convince people of were wrong. So if he was mistaken about that because of things that he heard from lawyers, that makes him not guilty. Lawyers aren't magical in this way. If he was honestly mistaken because of something that he heard from somebody other than a lawyer, that's just as much of a defense. And conversely, the mere fact that a lawyer told him something doesn't mean that he lacked the necessary intent if we can tell beyond a reasonable doubt that he knew that that was garbage. I just want to say it again so it really comes home to people. Advice of counsel, it's really kind of a misnomer. What it is is a way of trying to prove you lacked the requisite guilty intent. That's all it is. It's that much, but it's not like you received some memo laying it all out, etc. Norm Eisen put up a good piece about this on Friday. And, you know, two of the things that he said that I thought were useful to sort of unpacking the scope of advice of counsel. One, you know, he writes advice of counsel defense doesn't apply if the counsel themselves were, quote, integrally involved in the sham operation. And so here where you have Eastman and Giuliani and Cheesebro, like the people who are ostensibly the lawyers who are giving him all this awesome lawful advice are equally involved in the criminal conspiracy, then advice of counsel doesn't apply at all. The other thing that he said that I thought was kind of interesting is that, you know, if advice of counsel is, you know, this is just uh, sort of reframing what David just said, but if it is a sort of get out, literally get out of jail free card, then just having a lawyer who is part of the conspiracy would always get you off the hook, right? So you can have every single lawyer in the Justice Department, White House Counsel's Office, your own attorney general, every lawyer around you saying this is unlawful, this is unlawful, and having one guy on your team that you pay to be your lawyer to lie to you, it can't be that vast, right? It cannot possibly be that sprawling. And I think this is as good a time as any just to remind folks that one of the things that's just masterfully done in Smith's indictment is just tick off how many times actual lawyers give exactly the opposite advice. Right. It's almost like I think I described it somewhere as like a still life in like you know, dozens and dozens of people saying this is just like the height of crack pottery. And then, you know, the fact that you have four people all involved in setting the election aside with you who are lying to you. And I think it does a really good job of taking some of the force out of advice of counsel. Is it enough that they are, in fact, co-conspirators and not even unindicted, at least in the language of the complaint? But could the DOJ just stick them in there and therefore insulate against an advice of counsel defense, or will the court need to make some finding, Rule 104 or whatever, that they are indeed, and not just allegedly, co-conspirators in order for this principle in Norn's piece to apply? Can I just say, I think the defense needs to avoid even going that specific to advice of counsel. And again, I said this earlier, back off, and make this more about just what was out there in the ether. Because, I mean, look, if Trump's having a meeting with Rudy Giuliani and the, I don't know, the My Pillow guy, or actually it was the PayPal guy, I don't know who was in that office, that's not really an attorney client meeting. And I don't know that you need 
to establish that attorney client type advice situation, I say back off and make it a flurry of just what was out there, whether it be on the I don't know, on the dark web, I, it's any information that is vaguely legitimate that was in front of Trump's face. Make it that because how much more powerful is it if it is advice of counsel, if it's so difficult, if, for example, Trump would have to testify to establish advice of counsel. And if the co-conspirators are the attorneys that gave him that advice, I mean, this is already becoming a really problematic defense when really I think what the defense wants to do is be more general and just put in a ton of evidence. And I, that's why I think a judge may be more inclined to shoot down this sort of narrow defense where I think she'd be more inclined to let in the general theme, which is Trump was getting a lot of information that there was something wrong with the election. I keep coming back to that because I think it's one of very few defenses that is remotely viable. I think once you get start getting specific, there are a lot of defenses that the judge could shut down. Well, let's talk about what could she do it. And because I do look, they are obviously telegraphing again and again that they're going to do it. So is it a loser from the start? Does the judge say you can't even present evidence here because it's a irrelevant? Giving the devil his due, so to speak. Does this not get out of the box? Just how does it work a little bit? Because they do seem interested. I don't think it does much for the defense because yeah. um, it's an argument that goes to the jury. That's why it matters that this isn't a legal defense, that it's just a yeah. way in which you cannot be guilty of the crime. It means that this is a matter for the jury. There is a legal issue about what kind of evidence are you allowed to present. I think it's almost inconceivable that the judge would prevent Trump's lawyers from introducing evidence that Trump was told that the things that he believed were true. There's a separate legal issue about whether the jury should be instructed on the advice of counsel defense. But these are all things that are going to happen during trial. The judge is unlikely to decide them before trial. So these are not very good delaying tactics. I mean, this is the point that I really want to think through uh, the, uh, the prison through all these things. But I think I disagree. I think there will be pretrial litigation in which the United States says he cannot present an advice of counsel claim. You know, it's legally irrelevant. And to try to exclude that testimony. I'd like to think separately about just what the pretrial motions will consist of. But that my best guess is it's if they get it in, it's a trial. But I think they'll fight about it in advance. I don't know. Is this is this too uh, arcane? So, David, go ahead. Does that you think it's all just at trial? Yeah, that's my instinct. And so, just on the other side, I mean, there is, and and for advice of counsel, a series of requirements. This is going to come down to, I, I think, as you put it, David, do they get an instruction at the end of the, Do they present testimony that will ground? the judge to say to them, now you've heard, blah, 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 if you find X, Y, and Z. Yes, there'll be some argument about this, but yeah. it's a low stakes argument, I think, because the fact is that any of the standard jury instructions on advice of counsel are not going to help Trump terribly much because the standard jury instructions generally include language, for example, that says, if the counsel is one of your co-conspirators, you don't have this defense. And who decides that, by the way? The, the, the judge has to make the threshold showing. Is that, is that correct? That's my recollection. I don't think it's clear exactly whether the instruction should have this language, but it almost always does. And 
the advice of counsel defense almost always, when juries are instructed on this, they're generally also instructed that the defense only applies if the defendant has made full disclosure of all relevant facts to the lawyer. So my own feeling is that I can't imagine Judge Chutkin saying, I'm not going to allow the defense to introduce evidence about Trump's reliance on lawyers because these elements of the defense aren't satisfied, because it's just a way of showing that he had an honest belief in what he was saying. But if the question is, what kind of instruction do you get? You know, it's not clear to me that any of the standard instructions that you see on, on advice of counsel would be things that the prosecutors in this case would really mind having the jury told. And now a word from our sponsor, the American Civil Liberties Union. Hello, I'm Sandra Park, a senior attorney with the ACLU Women's Rights Project. At the ACLU, we believe everyone deserves equal access to safe and stable housing. Fair housing is a civil rights issue because it's fundamental to creating a more just society. Where we live is not just an address. It's central to all of life's opportunities, what services, healthcare, jobs, schools, and transportation we can access, and where we can build community with our families. The ACLU is working to reduce mass evictions and barriers to housing opportunities that disproportionately impact Black women renters and their families and restore important housing protections to expand equal access to housing opportunities for everyone. To learn more about our efforts to ensure everyone has equal access to safe and stable housing, visit ACLU.org. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thanks, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we start with two of our absolute favorite things, dessert and wine, and combine them into one delicious topic, dessert wines. What are they exactly and how are they made? Grab a fork and a glass, and let's dig into the sweet subject matter. Dessert wines are just as you'd hope they'd be, sweet wines that are typically served after a meal. Sometimes they're served with a dessert, and sometimes they're served as dessert. And then there are those times in between. The smoothness and lack of acidity make for a pleasant and easygoing taste that pairs perfectly with relaxation. I reach for dessert wines when I'm craving something sweet to enjoy while unwinding in the evening or after a big meal. To make a sweet dessert wine, the fermentation process is halted just prior to the yeast converting all the sugar to alcohol. Interrupting the fermentation ensures that there is sugar remaining in the wine, which gives us that sweetness we crave. But the amount of sweetness varies from wine to wine, and there's no shortage of options. Just pop into Total Wine & More, and you'll see many, many varieties, from ports to ice wines to Sautern and to Hungarian Tokai. Dessert wines come in both still and sparkling, too. They're also made from both red and white grapes. And they can be served chilled in a small glass or room temperature, proving that really, when it comes to dessert wines, anything goes. Hungry? Thirsty? Maybe a little of both? Stop into your local Total Wine to check out our large selection of dessert wines. And feel free to chat with a helpful guide for a recommendation. Cheers! Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. Let's shift gears a little. and those are I think those are the biggest ticket items we wanted to say. 
But let's really zero in on the distinction between, because thinking of the timeline, pre-trial litigation and stuff at trial or motions in limine, which for listeners are just, they're, they're like pre-trial, but they're right on the eve of trial. Because we know in Mar-a-Lago, as we're trying to think, can he make it from, extend things from April to November, that he's got some very strong cards to play involving a motion that will have to be decided before trial over the classified documents. So we don't have that here. The things we've talked about, we've evaluated them on the merits largely. Seems to me their biggest shot generally for big delay is some kind of extensive pre-trial period where she's doing the pre-trial motions. Really, that's all we got, right? Pre-trial and now you, you schedule the actual trial date. From that standpoint, you know, lousy or good, what do they got as you see it, if anything, the adjudication of which can really eat up time? So, I mean, I guess the short answer is lots of creative motions to dismiss simply because there's not a lot of precedent for this situation. Yeah. It's going to require a lot of research by the judge's clerks. And I guess somebody on the boots on the ground who practices in D.C. a lot would know if this judge is considered someone who takes a while to decide motions or not. But I mean, I think no matter who would have gotten assigned this this case, they're going to know they need to move quickly and prioritize this case. That's the dirty little secret is everyone says that Trump should be treated the same as any other defendant. But we all know that's not true. We all know the courts are prioritizing his case above all. Anyone who's been waiting for a trial, waiting for their motion to be heard, is taking a back seat while this arguably the most important criminal defendant in American history, his case is processed as fast as possible. So Trump's cases are not going to have that usual, hey, there's a pending motion. Let's put it on top of the pile. It's going to be prioritized. So as much as they may file motions to delay, they're not going to get that benefit of an, you know delay in the anonymous person you've never heard of trial, which is something I see quite a bit, especially in state court, but not quite so much in federal court. So as much as they'll file a flurry of motions that will require a ton of research, they're also going to be prioritized in a way that other defendants are not. So they actually, in my view, are not going to have the benefit of the ordinary delay that a regular defendant has. But I cannot answer the question of whether or not this case will go to trial before the election. I think it's more likely to come to trial before Mar-a-Lago, but at the same time, I don't know. To me, whether it goes to trial is one thing. To me, I find far more fascinating, as a side note, whether or not he's sentenced before inauguration. Those are the two dates that I think are constitutionally equally as significant, sentencing and inauguration. And generally, you can say between conviction and sentencing, it would be a couple months, typically, something like that, right? Yeah. I want to say, I think that whether it goes to trial before the election is hugely important. I don't think you can overstate how devastating it is for Trump to have to be a defendant in a trial. His whole thing is acting powerful, acting the big man. And you can't do that as a criminal defendant sitting in the courtroom while lots of other people talk about you. Sitting in a courtroom as a, as a defendant, is that is a nightmare for Trump. And I think for him and his lawyers, the whole ballgame here is delay. I just want to say the visual of, you know, being kept waiting yesterday, yeah. having him sit 
just apparently fidgeting and, you know, like how often do you see Trump at the mercy of someone else's schedule? And it's not just this one trial, right? It's E. Jean Carroll. Whatever happens in Mar-a-Lago, E. Jean Carroll, it's whatever happens with Fonnie Willis and Georgia, right? I mean, he's going to spend election season, regardless of what happens, in some sense in this and Mar-a-Lago, popping in and out of trials where he's the defendant. And I think it's really like the optics of this guy who's too busy, like battling back one serious criminal charge after another. It's almost, you know, we probably don't have time to have the conversation about what it means that this thing is not going to be likely on television. But I think that the optics of him ducking in and out of courtrooms and sitting around is absolutely debilitating for someone who thinks of himself as a man of action. It's Trump kryptonite. There you have it. And people, I think, don't realize it. And he, with false bravado, actually, did you hear uh, his response? One more indictment. I'm guaranteed the uh, nomination. Yeah, the concreteness of the vice president testifying. There is something almost physically diminishing about being a defendant, although you're right that we won't see it. Okay, so it seems like a general concurrence with David's point. It's a hugely, and to date, largely underappreciated point. Okay, so you're Trump. The whole game is delayed. Get by it. What of the things we've talked about or of anything else? Danny refers sort of generically motions to dismiss. I can think of one or two. I don't know how much time they would, but is that really all he's got? Legally novel claims that'll take a clerk two weeks to research maybe. And so, you know, no evidentiary hearings, no things that could go up on interlocutory appeal. You're the person who's just been brought in to try to advise him. Give me some time. Give me, give me, just give me two months. I don't care if you lose. What do you got? Well, I think Danny's right that volume is important. There's going to be one thing that matters is just lots and lots and lots of different issues. And I think very few of these issues are going to be eligible for an interlocutory appeal. And I think the D.C. Circuit has figured out Trump and they know how to deal quickly with interlocutory appeals. So the the ball game is trying to figure out things that take up time in the district court. And I think volume is, is number one. I think Danny's right about that. Number two is some combination of discovery and selective prosecution, prosecutorial misconduct, prosecutorial irregularities. And these combine. We need discovery about potential prosecutorial misconduct. I think it is likely that discovery claims and claims about prosecutorial misconduct are going to be prioritized and combined because those are classic delaying tactics for criminal defendants. Every case in modern day is voluminous, but there's no technological issue or arcane issues of law and the like. I don't think the discovery is all that massive. It's very different from the Mar-a-Lago case in that respect. Exactly, right? One thing about the arraignment yesterday that to me was the most important, you know, typically, as you guys would know, in a case like this, they would say, all right, your your next thing will be to show up August 28th with Judge Chutkin. And it would be at that hearing that Chutkin would say, okay, let's set another hearing to talk schedule. And here, Chutkin is in advance in communication 
with the magistrate, no normal case, as shown by the presence in the courtroom of several of the judges, is shaving off just, what, 10 days by saying on the 28th, that's when we'll decide trial. I think that really augurs a judge who's going to be not countenancing a lot of bogus delay anyway. Underappreciated in all this is that, you know, we we keep saying, and of course it's true, that this is singular and important and it's Trump and it's going to color everything. I think there's actually something really meaningful in the fact that Judge Chutkin has done all these January 6th cases and all of these cases involving the insurrectionists because there's something really, I think, singularly powerful in the message that this is just another January 6th insurrectionist case. And so I didn't read when everybody was sort of saying, wow, you know, she she's speeding this along. You know, she clearly, as you said, plans on moving this. I almost read it as one notch more profound, which is like, dude, I'm so good at these cases now. This is just <laughs> another insurrection case on my docket, which is very powerful signaling. I also thought it was interesting that the magistrate judge gave the lawyers three choices of dates and the prosecutors immediately said we'd prefer the earliest one and Trump's lawyers immediately said we want the last one. Right. And I think it also was interesting. You have the chief judge, Jeb Bosberg, and then a couple other judges in the court. I don't think it was, you know, for spectatorial interest. Already Trump has come out of the box predictably and Cruz as well, as, you, as you've as you made the point, Dahlia, uh, demonizing her in particular, whoever it would be, but it, since it's she as some kind of crazy ultra-left, etc. And I think that court has been forged in the fire of all these trials. They see themselves as a court. They're the ones who've done these thousand-plus cases. And I think Bozberg and others' presence there was really to sort of communicate that she's got happens to have drawn this case, but this is something that the court is working through as a court, etc. All right. Seems to me that we've identified what basically everyone thinks is his, his best claim, but also identified prospects for big pretrial delay, i.e. not not a lot, and then some tricky things at trial and instruction. So I think that this is, you know, really all, what I was hoping to do. We got a minute left for our Talking Five feature, and the question today actually goes off of Dahlia's provocative and, you know, really thoughtful piece in Slate about all the president's lawyers, as it were. So what do you think the case in the indictment says about the state of the legal profession in five words or fewer? Danny? This is our legal. It's not just That's Trump six on trial. already. I know it's not just Trump on trial. It's our legal system. It'll be fascinating to see justice done in this. The most significant set of criminal cases in American history. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> David, thoughts? Well, five words. It doesn't say anything good. I think Dolly's piece put this really well. I mean, the legal profession doesn't want to be and shouldn't be judged by Rudy Giuliani. On the other hand, the fact that it appears that all five of the co-conspirators named in the indictment are lawyers. Five for sure, and maybe even the sixth, right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. That should give the legal profession pause and uh, cause for some self-examination. And the author herself, I happen to have Dahlia Lithwick right here. <laughs> what is Okay, so so one correction, which is the piece was co-authored with Mark Stern, Thank you. who wrote some of the good lines. Who's great, by He's the way. Great. Really, really great. So smart. Yeah. I mean, I think my five words are, you know, 
we are not policing ourselves as a profession. And just even since that piece posted on Wednesday morning, I just want to note that John Eastman is still filing motions, like this week filing motions that he's tweeting. He's tweeting Washington Post had this like horrifying article about how Jeff Clark, just the huge thumbprint on the movement. And so it's not just, ha ha ha, you know, it happens to be five, possibly six lawyers. It's that these lawyers have as much influence today in the week after the indictment as they did in the run up to the events and in the years since. And it's just such a shocking, shocking thing that we can hive this off and be like, you know, well, it's only Rudy or only Sidney Powell, but holy hell, it's all of us until we can really seriously think about consequences for this. So kind of dispiriting. I prefer the goofy endings when we do this with goofy questions, but this is very depressing. Yeah, no, I hear it. And of course the judgment here is not them exactly but the profession and the light and the bar organizations and the and the like, which is my semi goofy meaning of my response, which is someone will always say anything. We are out of time. Thank you very much to David, Danny, and Dahlia, and thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard. Please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books discussions, and bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for our supporters. This past week, we posted a conversation with Bianca Vivian, the host of the talk show Generational Anxiety and the youngest staff opinion writer in New York Times history, about whether younger people on the left and right are paying careful attention to Trump's legal and political turmoil. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and are inclined to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether they're for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate producer Catherine Devine, sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Our research producer is Zeke Reed, Rosie Dawn Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Meredith McCabe, Akshaj Turabailu, Emma Maynard, and Kalena Tano. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.